Iratega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings. And I'm Kat Cho, author of Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits, and this is Write or Die. <laughs> did you have like a little brain fart moment, Clarabelle? I, I did. I I just, I've been like going from thing to thing. Like I've been, I was supposed to be on quote unquote staycation since <laughs> yesterday or since actually since, what's today? Thursday? Since to, is today Thursday or Wednesday? I yes, don't know. It's Thursday. It <laughs> Since Tuesday after the sales conference at Scholastic. And, but I haven't actually been able to because I've ha- I had to do uh, other stuff. I had to do like an author's note. I had to like answer a bunch of emails. Like I just haven't had the time to actually rest. So I've just been like jumping from thing to thing for the past couple of days when I'm like running on empty. So mm-hmm. I had to take like a 10 minute nap before we talked on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Do I tire you out? No, no, no just it's just everything. <laughs> I don't have the bandwidth for like anything right now. I just feel like very tired. So Aww. yeah. Well, I I totally feel you. I feel like we're all getting really worn down these days. It's and it's more than just like quarantine fatigue or whatever they call that, like the work from home stuff. It feels like a lot like this year is just like battering down on us. Mm. Yeah. I guess you could have we could have said that last year too though. Yeah, I just I feel that there is like a strong push towards people wanting to um go back to normal even if it's like mentally right because like Mm -hmm. giving ourselves a break like people are getting vaccinated like hopefully things will get better soon but I feel like that's so far off and like the prospect of that is very overwhelming and at the same time we're all sort of like being treated or being expected to work as if there's nothing going on and um like there every once in a while see a a tweet that's like we're not okay and like it's it's like crazy that like or it's like wild that people keep expecting us to be okay like it's all right like none of us have to be 100% right now and I think being tired there's like an extra layer to it of the work plus everything else that's just making it pretty overwhelming and just hard. It's just been a hard, a really, really difficult year and change for all of us. And I think that the things that were bad before are being like sort of exacerbated by the situation. So if you were having a problem with something or like a living situation or like over like a, or a job or anything like that, just the whole pandemic has me like amplified things so it's just been rough i'm sleepy (laughs) i know totally no i get it i think also it's interesting because we are at that place now right where people are starting to get vaccinated um i feel so lucky to have been able to get vaccinated and i i i don't know if you've ever heard this analogy but it's like this idea that like if you're climbing up like cliff face like if you're rock climbing or something you're not supposed to look up you're not supposed to like look to see how far you are from the top because when you can see how far you have to go like 
it's kind of like a psychosomatic thing mm. where your body gets tired faster. Whereas like if you just look just at the next handhold or look at the rocks in front of you and you just like get a rhythm going and you keep going, you don't think about like how much farther is it, then you'll like reach the top before you know it. I don't know if you've ever heard that analogy I ha- before. I haven't, no. Mm-mm. But I do think about it sometimes now because I do think like because the vaccines have come out and because they're so promising and because like a good proportion of like the adult population has gotten it at this point. Um, we feel like the end is on the horizon and we are like, oh my God, it's so close, but I can't touch it yet. Like, and it gets really frustrating. And then it's like so exhausting because it's like, I've gone so far already. You're telling me I still have to go up to like that point on the horizon that I can't, I don't even know how far it is, but I can see it. Like, and then you just get so much more exhausted just thinking about it because it just mentally overwhelms you, I guess. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, and I think that what makes this whole situation so hard is that we couldn't look up if we wanted to because we don't know when it's over going to be over yeah and i if for me that i feel like that makes it so much harder because like if we did have an end date like let's say like we all knew with certainty that july 1st Mm -hmm. right we would be able to travel and gather and things would be relatively back to normal then it would feel a lot less daunting but like right now it just feels like never ending and I think that is what makes it hard because I keep hoping like now surely (laughs) (laughs) but but it's just not happening that way um and I think also like I don't know it's just I guess I don't have, like, right now, I I know I just literally finished saying, like, I'm supposed to be taking a break. But when I do have a lot of work, I'm able to sort of distract my mind with it. Mm -hmm. And when I don't have tons of stuff on my plate, I start overthinking. Um, So I guess I'm in that, like, that period of, like, oh, no, but everything sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting, too, because, like, back to normal, like, with little quotes around it it's so different for each individual person so like one person's back to normal could literally just like i just want to be able to eat in a restaurant you know because Mm. i usually work from home but like i like to go to restaurants and that's what i used to do and another person's back to normal can be like i travel a lot and i wish i could do that again and those are two completely needs so like I think that there's the case of that too. Like when people are talking about it on social media, like they're all talking about a different version of what normal Mm -hmm. is to them. Mm -hmm. I think for like writers and authors, our back to normal is one of the more extreme ones because we need or we used to be more used to gathering in groups for part of our job. And so our normal is one that we we'll kind of have to wait a little bit longer for than some people will have to wait for. Um, And that can be a lot to think about and a lot of pressure to put on us because like we've talked about it before that there is this pressure on authors to do so much to promote our own books, but like how much can we really do if we're not meeting readers and connecting with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that we don't have to necessarily – also meet with readers in order to connect with them um Mm -hmm. 
but I do miss it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I miss going places and, and connecting with people in person. I don't necessarily think it's a mandatory thing though, that, that has to happen in order for, um, for us to, to, to connect with readers, especially like it all depends on the kind of books you write and like the age group and I don't know. I'm just hesitant to say that because then there's a whole swath of people who don't get to do that ever, even For sure. in like normal circumstances. And um, I don't think that that means that it's a lost cause for them or anything, but I know what you mean. It's just been, it's just been tough. It's been, it's been really hard. Um, to, to work and to keep going and to be like encouraged that things are going to get better, but I hope that they do. Like I can only like keep hoping. And I mean, we're going to see each other like at the time of this recording, we're going to see each other next week. That's a new mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> that is. Yeah. Next week we'll have both been over two weeks post second vaccine dose. So we have already scheduled like a safe hangout. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm like, super excited to watch this. The Netflix series is going to be very good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm super excited because it does feel like it's an adaptation that does that checks all the boxes that I want personally from an adaptation as a fan, which is that it still has recognizable parts of the original story and the heart of it, like mm. what it is at its heart, but like the dressing has been shifted a bit to just fit the medium better. And it kind of like looks like it's going to delve deeper into characters that might not have had that much time in the books that mm. like I personally would want to know more about or like even have characters interacting that didn't get to interact in the books and you always think yes. like well what if so and so met so and so like they live in the same universe like what would that be like but the show can potentially give us that which will be so fun so yeah I love those things when adaptations do that and it really does look like the show is going to do it yeah I'm just I can't stop laughing at the fact that the crows are got hired to essentially kidnap Alita it's the funniest thing to me because it's like (laughs) of course they would like of course that's like a joke that you make like like the like the crows would like kidnap the main character of their world (laughs) and that's what they're doing (laughs) that's really exciting i think it's gonna be it's gonna be a nice a nice um distraction from the world which is what we love from our entertainment yeah i've seen a lot of like threads of um, people in the disabled community really excited to see kaz like kick ass (laughs) um (laughs) yeah because you know he's he's a he's sort of a representation of lee's own um disability like they both use canes and he never um i loved hearing freddie the actor who is uh playing cast talk about how it's he always saw it as like like a tool for him to like kick more ass and not a hindrance (laughs) (laughs) like it makes him it like elevates his persona in ketterdam as dirty hands right like he's this badass and like you just never know like what he's gonna do he's so unpredictable and 
menacing and just the coolest. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited. He's like my, the crows are my favorite, so I cannot wait to see them. Like I was watching this the making of the world of the Shadow and Bone, I think, um, which was this like the thing that just dropped today that was like a little bit behind the scenes of with some more like shots and stuff of the show. So I was watching the that that video, and when Kaz came on screen, I like screamed. I got so excited. Oh um, I just really love those characters, and I love that throughout the duology and in like the subsequent books too, um, uh, where he makes his like little cameos in in the in Nikolai's story that Kaz. And the rest of the drags too, they never really deviate from like who they are. Like Kaz mm-hmm. obviously has a story arc, but he's always terrible. And like he's <laughs> always like all about his money. And I love that. I just love that he's unapologetic about who he is and what matters to him. And um, you know, even though he has like some some changes as like a human being that we see, especially when it comes to like Inej. But, mm-hmm. um, but at his core, like he's just all about the Benjamins and or the Kruger, <laughs> the Kruger <laughs> shall I say? Oh my goodness! Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I'm I'm excited. I I I think that like this will be really fun, and mm. it's just like so nice to have something that oh, you yeah. get excited about, right? Yeah, like, distraction. What a distraction. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, right? And Disney always released its animated movies in summertime. And I, so you always knew, like, sometime in the summer, there's going to be a Disney movie. Mm. And there was, like, that renaissance of Disney, right? Where they were, like, just, like, quality content for a good, like, decade. So it was something to look forward to. And I just remember as a kid, like, really looking forward to these (laughs) Disney movies, um, and getting really excited about the release and like, oh, who are we going to go see it with? And who, like, it's going to be so fun and such an experience. And I think like as an adult, we don't let us get ourselves get excited about stuff the way we used to let ourselves get excited as kids because we have so much other things that are like mm. crowding our brain, mm-hmm. like got to pay your bills and got to meet these deadlines and got to do X, Y, Z thing that's responsible. But I like I like embracing those moments of being like, listen, I've really been looking forward to this, you know, movie or show coming out for a while now, so I get to be excited about it. Hell yeah, hell yeah, and like I I I especially love that it's a world that has nothing to do with our own. Like we mm-hmm. are going to be transported. Like get me the fuck out of here and. I want to go in the fold. Let the Volker eat me. It's just anything <laughs> <No>. but this. <laughs> Don't go in there. Oh my god! Don't say that. I'm gonna be. Me. I'm gonna be scared. Just so you know. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but yeah, I I'm really excited about that. I'm excited that you know. There, there's a lot of things that we get to be excited about in our. Um, in our field but we don't get to talk about it a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is something i get to be excited about and talk about it and just be purely a fan which i just love going back to those places yeah. where i just get to be a fan of something right sometimes Truly. i think when we become writers we kind of forget that you know 
the funness of just being a pure <laughs> fan and not like mm-hmm. analyzing the story structure yeah. or the plot or like reading something because you're supposed to blurb it or you're supposed to like authenticity read it or whatever like I, I want to get back to that place. That's a that's a personal goal for me in 2021. I wrote it in my little planner for one of my goals is to just like try to let go of the writer brain when I'm reading new, new stories and watching new shows. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I think that's really important. And, and I feel like that's part of why I really love uh, video games because um, there's tons of storytelling in video games and I don't feel the same connection to the book world so I can Mm -hmm. sort of like really get lost in just playing and like the storyline without thinking did this book hit the list (laughs) (laughs) who gives a shit um yeah or like or like oh what was the marketing like for this book like oh this book is so good I wonder what marketing it got like random stuff like that um that that I don't think we mean to think at the moment but it pops into our head right yeah. And I'm also just personally excited to see this for Lee because as everyone knows, I am obsessed with her. I love <laughs> Lee so much. And if you guys listen to our an interview with Lee, you'll see that like her journey wasn't the like 19 year old gets a book deal. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like she lived a life before mm-hmm having like written shadow and bone she was like she was like sleeping on a friend's couch or something when she started yeah when she started (laughs) her the series and she was in her like mid 30s and i just really love those kinds of stories of success because they're not made a big deal of in the same way that like younger success is which both should be celebrated and yeah but I feel like because those kinds of stories aren't framed in the same way people don't notice those um, details as much Mm -hmm. they don't notice the details of the life surrounding the book more so just like the success of the book itself um but I love the fact that, like, Lee began her career in her 30s and, like, she overcame a lot to get to where she is today. And she's just such an inspiration and so wise and such a kind person. Yeah. And I love to see good things happen to people who are, um, who are, who are good, who have good hearts. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like Daniel Jose Older's story, too, because of that. Like, mm-hmm. he lived a life before he became an author. He lived a really interesting life. Yeah. Like, he was an EMT. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's, like, you know, the YA book that's, like, opening up the new Rick, Rick Riordan, Riordan Presents YA mm-hmm. imprint. So cool. Like, you know, they went to him for that because he's such an amazing storyteller because he's the he shit deserves it That's yeah why. And he's amazing so i i love those stories i think they resonate with us too carbell because it's kind of us we both had careers before we mm-hmm. entered publishing we both debuted like in our 30s mm-hmm. we're not you know 22 year old you know fresh fresh out of college no, no, no. authors um and i'm and I'm happy so happy with that because I loved my life before this Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's different for everybody right like there are some people who 
had got their book deals earlier and I'm and it works for them and they're happy um we got ours like later than in our 20s I don't want to say later because it's so young <laughs> we're little um, old ladies little old ladies well, hi, <laughs> no, that's my old fellow, lady voice fellow listeners <laughs> um <laughs> um but but absolutely I wouldn't have I wouldn't be able to write the way that I do if I didn't have the life experiences that I've had or mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny that I say this because I feel like I handle it so poorly sometimes, but 20-year-old Clarabelle would have been a hot mess, oh. the biggest disaster. On Twitter, are you kidding me? Goodbye. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. So me now, I'm able to handle the things that are thrown at me with a much more level head. Um I did not know how to handle my emotions at all when I was younger mm-hmm. um, or my impulses. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so you know, I, I think everyone's path is different. And like for us, like we're happy with how it happened. And it's cool mm-hmm. to see someone like succeed in a really big way that like ha- whose path mirrors ours um yeah because it's just like encouraging you know and yeah I'm just really really excited for the show we should do we should do we should do a special series where we discuss each episode on writer writer die does shadow and bone that would be Uh, really good (laughs) that would be wild yeah let's see let's see if we have enough thoughts after we watch it to like have actual content for everyone or we could just record our us screaming as we watch the show and that'll be the podcast no just like yeah do you need some ambient noise in the background of us screaming well then here you go here's like 30 minutes of it and we're making uh we're making cut like shadow and bone cocktails right that's my roommate's idea yes roommate who is you know is very creative and also works in publishing um decided that we should have cocktails so we're gonna have the sun summoner cocktail we're gonna have um the darkling as a cocktail and then we're gonna have dirty hands as a cocktail um (laughs) it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting we bought claire but we bought like special fancy little those you know those flat wide champagne glasses oh my god this is gonna be a thing this is gonna be a whole thing but here i and i know we're gonna going super extra for it because literally it's just like five of us like we wanted to make sure it was all people who had been fully vaccinated and were like two weeks post vaccination we wanted to be as safe as possible um and so we couldn't invite too many people to it because we only know like five people who've been vaccinated right. at that point. But um, even though it's just five of us, we're like, listen, we haven't hung out with other humans in so long. So we're going in. <laughs> yeah, I'm, re- I'm really excited. Gumi Young has a secret. She's a gumiho, a shape-shifting nine-tailed fox that must hunt down men and devour their energy in order to live forever. No one in modern-day Seoul believes in the old tales anymore, which makes it the perfect place to hide and to hunt. But Myung's life is turned upside down when she saves the life of a human boy on Jihoon. 
And after Myung saves Jihoon's life, the two form a tenuous friendship that blooms into romance, setting them down a path that will soon force Myung to choose between her immortal life and Jihoon's. Wicked Fox and its companion novel Vicious Spirits finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and K-dramas. Wicked Fox has been called a vibrant debut novel that employs Korean genre conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly, and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits are out now from Penguin Random House wherever books are sold. Today's guest is Shelly Romero. Shelly is an assistant editor at Scholastic Press, where she is looking to build a list comprised of predominantly BIPOC and traditionally marginalized authors. She graduated from Stevens College with a bachelor's degree in English and attended the 2017 NYU Summer Publishing Institute. She is a member of Latinx in Publishing, People of Color in Publishing, and a junior mentor for Representation Matters Mentorship Program. She was selected as Publishers Weekly Starwatch 2020 honoree, which shines a light on innovative, talented professionals from all parts of the industry. Born and raised in Miami by Honduran parents, she now resides in New York City, where she is forever chasing the perfect cafe cubano and pan tostado. Yay, Shelly! <laughs> Thanks, Sorry. y'all. I, was like, I paused because I was like, did I pronounce that correctly? <laughs> You did well. You did. You're good. You did. You did a good job. I actually don't think I knew that you grew up in Miami. Why am I dumb? I was born and raised in Miami. Like I knew Pitbull when he was Mr. 305 and not Mr. Worldwide. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's how deep it goes. Like (laughs) that's amazing. I think I, I did know you were from Miami, but I think probably because it, it like was a conversation where like, one of us revealed that we grew up in Florida and the other person was like, oh my gosh, me too. Yes. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> but I, can, I come from like the cultureless beige part of Florida and you come from like the only interesting part. <laughs> <laughs> it is really interesting. Like I was like looking up this Hialeah themed, I'm from a Hialeah. So I'm like from Miami, but it's easier to say that rather than being like, I'm from Hialeah because you get people being like, what? Even though it's like a really large city actually. But I'm like, I follow this Instagram that is like all about Hialeah and the history and like new businesses and stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's changed so much, but some things haven't changed and I want to go back, but we're in a panorama. <laughs> I get, Do you ever get this weird thing where you like look up the history of like your hometown, but it doesn't feel real? You're like, no, my hometown has history. That's like for anyone who didn't grow up in like New York, you know, it's weird to think that there's like this like old, old history. <laughs> A lot, especially because like Hialeah was, Hialeah is a Muscogee word. Um, And like, we we were never taught any of this history, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we know about like, like Henry Flagler or whatever, and Curtis, whatever, like all these like, you know, white people who colonized (laughs) the like town, like the land, and we don't really learn that history. So it's actually been interesting to go back and read what like how it came to be mm-hmm. you know the town that I grew up in that's cool. so cool thinking of like warm Miami right now makes me <laughs> makes me sad because it's not warm in New York it is cold it is anyway not so cold. you've always you were you were born and raised in darkness Clarabelle yes I was I am a cold <laughs> I I am one with the frigid. Uh, it's so funny because like 
everyone like i i love the like i love winter like i love winter i love the seasons changing and everything like that but i'm also from new york so i gotta complain about every single season the moment it gets cold it's too fucking cold outside the moment it gets hot it's fucking sweat i'm sweating balls right now it's just our culture new york culture (laughs) is complaining about the weather like it just is (laughs) um but uh shelly we're not here to talk about weather we're here to talk about you Okay. Yeah. And we want to know how you got into publishing. Uh, how did it start? Tell us the story. Yeah, I can give you, you know, like the creation of me, of Shelly the editor. <laughs> um, so I went to Stevens College, which is a um, the second oldest women's college in the country still. Um, and it's in the middle of uh, Missouri. I went there because I originally wanted to do fashion design, but plot twist. I can't, I don't have any skills, any technical design skills. I just love fashion. Um, But I ended up switching my major to English right before I got to Stevens. And I found out that there is a literary mag called Harbinger. It's award-winning. It's fantastic. And it kind of is like this, it's, it's it's a class you can take, but it's actually just like you learn how to put together a literary magazine. Um, And after I got like one of my like short stories in my freshman year, I was like, I want to take this. And you spend the first semester basically like drumming up like, oh, like, you know, submit to Harbinger. And then like over the break, we review the submissions and then spring semester comes and we literally have to put together the magazine in like three months, like three and a half months. So it's kind of intense in that way. But then we get to throw like a party in April um, to celebrate the publication. And, you know, when I was working on Harbinger stuff, I was like, oh my God, I absolutely love this. I love working on a team. I love being collaborative. I love getting to, you know, read through submissions and think about like, you know, what will fit the magazine. And actually we're really interesting because Harbinger chooses a theme based on the submissions chosen, not the other way around. Um, And so that's like another just really great creative thing. And I just ended up deciding look, I'm going to get into, I want to go into publishing. I don't know what I want to do right now, um, but I'm just going to try. And I ended up doing marketing stuff. I interned at the Missouri Review, which is a really great literary magazine. And I decided to apply to NYU Summer Publishing as a way to basically get from Missouri to New York. I did that program for six weeks. I literally, it was like a month break. I graduated month break, then came to the city. And, um, about three weeks after finishing the program, I got my job at Scholastic. <laughs> so it was a little fast, um, but definitely between doing Harbinger, between doing SPI, like I really got a sense of what I wanted to do, um, which was you know, to work either as an editor or to work in marketing and publicity, to be close with authors. And it wasn't until I started interviewing and doing informationals that I really narrowed down that, you know what, I think I'm going to apply for some editorial jobs. I think that's what I'm going to be like interested in. And here we are (laughs) almost four years later. That's so cool. Um, And you have you always loved to read like your whole life or? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So like my first language is Spanish. Me, me too. Burr, burr, burr. Hey, <laughs> uh, representation. Um, <laughs> and 
and I actually learned, I think my mom says I learned how to speak English because I watched like Dora and like I watched TV and like, you know, just learned it because, you know, kids' brains are sponges. Uh, but as soon as I learned how to read in English, I was reading like the Berenstein Bears books. I was reading like Nancy Drew. Like I was reading everything that I could get my hands on that I loved. Um, and I actually felt like in middle school where I was like, ugh, like I hate reading for class. Um, but then, you know, Twilight comes out, obviously, and the vampire <laughs> era of YA happens and I am obsessed. And that just propels my love of YA even more. <laughs> Oh my I mean, god, that's partly because you are a vampire. Yeah. I, mean, I am. I am. <laughs> we all know. We all know. This is not oh. a secret. <laughs> my coffin, you know, is in my room. Um, but I feel like like you also have I feel like your love of like that kind of speculative type of genre fits in well with like how kid lit like treats it as well because there's like so much like intermixing of like different types of genres and like experimentation and like kind of being like ex like not fitting into a box which I think fits you really well because I when I first met you I was like she's so sweet and cute and then like I saw a post that you put on Instagram and you were like the goth queen and I was like okay that's okay <laughs> So there's like so many complicated parts of you, but I think it like comes out well with like what you choose to work in. I mean, you work on the Goosebumps books, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think I like to say that if I had to tell you what my energy was, is that I'm like a goth golden retriever because I'm super like <laughs> that <happy. laughs> is correct. That is the best description of <laughs> that's the best description of you that I can think of. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, hi, how are you? How are you? Oh, hi, it's so nice to meet you. I also love doom and gloom and I watch horror movies and I like, you know, <laughs> listen to goth industrial music <laughs> while I edit kids books. Um, but no, yeah, I got, I get to, um, my boss, Matt, who is phenomenal. He is the editor of Goosebumps and has been the editor of Goosebumps for a while. I don't want to out him and say how old he is, but you know, <laughs> okay. I grew up. We'll protect, we'll protect it. It was protective. But I grew up reading Goosebumps. Like, that's one of the books that really was fundamental. Like, I was devouring them, you know, day after day, like, reading them in one day, going back to the library, like, bringing some more home, and then going back for more. Um, and now it's it's a little wild to to be able to work on them. Yeah. I mean, it's such a long-running series, too, when you really think about it. Like, it was so important during our childhoods and now to think that there's kids today where it's gonna it's like gonna be a really important book to them too that's like so cool to think when it comes to books in general like how timeless they can be a lot of the time which is why this industry is so fun to work in yeah and I like to think that I always say this but you know for me like I said the YA vampire era of like you know, 2005 to like 2009, 10 or whatnot, like that was incredibly fundamental to my like love of reading, what I love to work on now, you know, just what shaped me as a reader and now as like an editor. But I also think like middle grade, you know, works in that same way that those books in this middle grade sphere are so special because that is the time in a kid's life where they're figuring kind of themselves out a little bit more and they're figuring out what they like to read 
you know, they're deciding, oh, I love graphic novels or I love comic books or, you know, I really love spooky books. And it really just, that is like such a cornerstone for a person. Mm-hmm. For sure. I love that. Um, yeah, Hunger Games is one of the things that made me feel like, wait, <laughs> wait, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I want to do this. Like, what? <laughs> um Yeah, it was funny because I worked at CAA when everybody was like reading the books at the same time. And like you would walk by assistance desks and you would like see them reading it like under their desk. And like we were all talking about the books at the same time. And it was just a special time for sure. I I miss those exciting times in YA, but I don't miss how white it was. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I was, um, I just got all of my, so Blue Bloods by Melissa La Cruz. Like, if you asked me what book was actually fundamental, like, I Twilight got me into the vampires. And listen, I had Alice Cullen Choker. I wrote Twilight fan fiction. But Blue Bloods, Blue Bloods was like everything to me. I would reread every Blue Bloods book like whenever like the new one came out and I remember the exact moment I finished that series I was reading the last book in my like English class we were supposed to be watching like I don't know Sir Gowan and the Green Knight like the old one with like Sean Connery (laughs) and I was in the back and I was silently crying because I finished this book that's how much it meant to me but when I'm looking back and I'm actually going through and rereading them again unfortunately yeah they're they're very they're all very white and even if they were authors of color they had they were you know made to write mm-hmm. white characters to sell or be more marketable for sure it's a shame I remember the there's two books that I read right before and right during me actually thinking okay maybe I'll write a book and try to pursue publication and it was Legend by Marie Lu and um, the Blood of Eden trilogy by Julie Kagawa. And those two books both do have Asian protagonists. Um, And it was very weird to me. I felt like oddly uncomfortable. I was like, oh, they're Asian. Like, how Asian are they going to be? Like, how important is it that they're Asian or not? Like, I just like kept on thinking about it. And, and I feel like it it was really important for me to be able to see these like, very obviously like stated in the text Asian characters like being able to like just be heroes you know (laughs) like it wasn't the point of it wasn't their culture and I think I needed that kind of a wake-up call of being like oh I don't have to talk about my culture all the time in order to write about someone who looks like me (laughs) um because at the time I was like very insecure about talking about my own culture um so to be given that permission you know, by books like that, which, which I yeah. really enjoyed, was super duper important. Obviously, now, like, I debuted with a book that's very Korean, but like, I needed to take the steps to get there, you know? Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. I feel I also had like a similar way because I used to, you know, like, aside from my Twilight fan fiction, I used to write like in middle school and looking back on it, like, all these like short stories that I wrote and like had up online on like fictionpress.net and figment.com like all the protagonists were white and it's taken like a long time to like be like oh crap like that was like the result of reading all these predominantly white stories um 
and not really getting to, you know, like Dr. Redeemson's bishop says, like your, you know, your mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors, not getting to have that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, I think the great thing, though, too, with like us kind of coming to these realizations is that now that we're in the industry, we can we can do our best to kind of like break that mold. And I know that you're definitely actively doing that, Shelley, with mm-hmm. the types of books that you're acquiring. Um, and so do, how like how do you kind of like feel about, you know, what you're trying to do with with building up your list? Like, are you do you have any like hard and fast rules for yourself or are you kind of just trying to like work within the framework of the industry? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think one of the things since I came into the industry and y'all know me, I'm very outspoken, I'm loud, I'm ambitious. And I've been always very clear with the agents that I speak to is that I want my list to be predominantly BIPOC authors. That isn't to say that I'm not going to publish white authors, but my responsibility as an editor who has the power to acquire and has this kind of privilege is to make that room, right? And acquire these new voices um, that are writing those same stories that, you know, I think I that I grew up in, but with that fresh take. Um, I always yell that I want, you know, queer vampires. I want black and brown vampires. You know, I want to see, you know, right now I'm asking for more stories with black and brown emo kids who are trying to go to like a music festival and all the dynamics that come with that. Um, and, and so I think the way I do, I deal with that is just being transparent. This is what I want. These are the kinds of stories that I want to publish on my list. Um, and I'm very grateful to have a team at Scholastic that is incredibly supportive of that mission of that, of those goals. Um, and when I have those submissions that I fa- just fall in love with, that I can go to them and be like, this is it. I'm a fight for this. Like, let's go. <laughs> um, I love and so, that. yeah, it, it's about being transparent. Like, yeah. Ride or Die is brought to you in part by Tee Public. Tee Public is home to independent art on stickers, cases, shirts, and more. Check out our Write or Die store at tpublic.com slash stores slash Write or Die podcast. Check it out now. Um, so can you walk us through, you know, it doesn't have to be like super detailed, but a day in the life of, of an editor, like what does your day to day look like? I love this question because I get this question a lot on informationals that I do for people. And the answer is always my day to day always looks so different. And this is something that I did not expect coming in. I thought, I don't know that I was going to be, you know, sitting and, reading submissions. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> oh no. I am, you know, like on a normal, like, you know, time and not in a pandemic, we would be in the office. Right. And I would be going from meeting to meeting sometimes, you know, we have production status meetings for our titles and I go instead of my bosses. So now that we do it virtually, I'm attending for my own titles and also for theirs. Um, it could be our normal Monday editorial meetings where we're just kind of like brainstorming, or I could be going to acquisitions. Um, every day, I take every day differently. Like it all just depends on what's my to-do list, what needs to get done now, what can wait a little bit, how can I prioritize this? 
And that's always the thing about being an editor um, and trying to have the elusive work-life balance is that you're always going to be triaging. Um, Mm -hmm. And especially as like a young, like junior level editor, I'm also trying to like figure out how to prioritize my work on my books versus, okay, the administrative support work that I need to do for both my bosses um, and how to navigate those things. So yeah, day to days, lots of meetings. You go to a lot of meetings as editors, you're like the in-house like liaison for your authors. So whether it is a marketing meeting, a publicity meeting, like I said, production status, or if it's the normal brainstorm meetings, whatever, um, you go to them. But there's also a lot of communication between the editors. We're very collaborative. Right now we're all on Slack. We do working lunch calls where we just sit silently and type, mumble to each other, and maybe (laughs) occasionally take a minute, a few minutes, and like rant about something, um, which is different. Like if we were at the office, we would totally go for like the 3 p.m. like bubble tea run. Oh, uh, which tea, I really bubble tea. Yeah. Which Catcho, you're the one who got I me did. into it. <laughs> I introduced Shelly to bu- I did. I introduced her to bubble tea. It was a Brooklyn Book Festival. That's right? so great. Yeah, we- yeah. It was like it was right after and you were like, You've never had bubble tea. I'm like, Oh, I don't know, I don't like tea. And you're like, No, no, this is different. It's different. <laughs> I forced her. I, I think yeah. we went to we went to like Gongcha or something, and I like forced her to come with me. I was like, just try it, just try it. <laughs> like, and now it's a problem. My, <laughs> I have like a bubble tea budget. <laughs> oh no! I feel so bad. Bubble tea but is so good. I I wish I small could small joys one every day. Same. Um, um, but yeah, it's so different. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, okay. So I was going to say, um, a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are kind of baby writers or like break, trying to break into the industry. So for those people, do you mind kind of explaining um, what an acquisitions meeting is and what a launch, like the, what you do for season launch? And um, and I think you also said sales, a sales meeting. So can you define those three different Things yeah. For people. So for acquisitions, you know, once, um, so for example, our policy is that we only accept um, agented submissions. So once we get a submission from an agent, we review it. I personally tend to read through the whole manuscript if I'm really into it before I make the decision to take it, which I'm a slow reader and as an editor, that's like a big problem for me. <laughs> um, but if I decide, wow, yes, I love this. I'm going to, I want to take it. I definitely alert my bosses who are my direct reports, you know, usually tell our, um, our publisher, um, David Levithan that I want to take it, um, or Abigail McAdam, who's our associate publisher. And then we head to acquisitions. So in the process before acquisitions, I have to do PLs and I have to do a memo. I have to do comp research. So I'm looking at book scan to figure out, you know, are there books that are similar and how did they sell in the market? How do they do, um, but there's also like thematic comps, like, you know, when I'm pitching it to the acquisitions room, can I say it's this meets this, um, which I feel like authors often hear when you're pitching online. Um, and at acquisitions, it's basically all of the higher ups. You've got representatives from marketing and sales and publicity. You've got the finance people. You've got your your president. And, you know, you're presenting to them, hey, this is the book that I think we should 
you know, by like, these are the reasons, you know, let's have a conversation. It's a conversation. Um, and from that, you either get the yes or no. And if it's a yes, um, I get to write. Actually, I, I prefer to do the call first because I know that like agents get to do the call for authors and I'd love to do the call for agents to be like, <laughs> hi, <laughs> guess what? I have an offer. Here's all the things. I'm going to send you this email after, but yay. Like, I'm so excited. I love it. <laughs> and everyone, you know, like I get to do that call and I, it's, it's always so exhilarating and stressful, but I love getting to do it. Um, so that's acquisitions, it, you know, there's, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a team thing and, you know, you, you do your best to present and hopefully everyone, you know, also reads the project and thinks of it the same way you do. Um, for launch, I really enjoy launch. I'm someone who gets a little bit of stage fright presenting. Like I totally have those moments where I do a presentation and then afterwards just kind of zone out and I'm like, what just, what did I just do? <laughs> um, but launch is really great because outside of the acquisitions team, like the larger division, um, our trade division doesn't really get to, you know, hear about our projects until launch. And so at lunch, uh, launch, I usually do a, a minute to a minute and a half like script. And I'm basically presenting, you know, this book is a debut middle grade and, you know, it's going, you know, if it's illustrated, I talk about that. If it's, you know, YA, like talk about the themes, mention comps, talk a little bit about plot, but mostly talk about why I love it. Um, because that's like my first chance to tell the larger um, team in our division, this is why I love this book. And I hope you get to read it and love it for the same reasons I do. Um, so that's always fun. And I think my favorite thing about launch is just getting to also see my like friends and colleagues talk about their books because I, I feel like as an editor you're always learning and you're definitely learning from each other and to see how they do things it's always interesting because I'll be like okay I love how they presented that or I love how she presented that and I'm going to take it and do it for my next book <laughs> I love that um, so much yeah yeah it's it's so yeah. funny because everyone in this industry deals with like the excitement of offers and like rejection also yeah, I mean, editors deal with rejection too. I feel like we don't talk about it a lot, but we do. Like, you know, I have gotten into auctions and I have lost and all I can be like, yeah, I'm sad, but at least the book is getting published. So I'm happy about that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, smaller or, you know, it gets swept right from under you because it gets preempted by someone else. Um, mm -hmm. and again, like all I can just think about is look, I will always have, you know, a, an opportunity to find that other book that I love. Um, and also I'm always just so happy for those authors, you know, that they're getting that, that chance and that offer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, editors deal with rejection too. And it does break our heart too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Of course. Oh. You're also human. At least I yeah. hope you guys are. <laughs> You're not like Editor robots, Editor robots. Right? <laughs> Editor robots are taking over the world. <laughs> um, and I think y'all asked about a sales conference. Yes. So that's kind of like, that happens several weeks after launch. And that is where typically like, again, typically if we were not in a pandemic, um, our sales reps um, would come from, you know, they would come in from everywhere 
um, because they don't all live in New York. Um, We have sales reps all across the country and they're different regions and they would come in and actually, um, I don't get to present, our higher ups present for us and they present our, our titles and, you know, we give them information on it. And by that point, the sales reps would have um, read either excerpts or sample chapters or hopefully the full manuscript, um, whatever we have on hand. And they, you know, this is their chance for them to go back afterwards to their um, bookstores that they represent and say, buy this book. I just heard about this book. I read it and I love it. Buy this book. (laughs) Um, So always want to make a good impression to the sales reps too. That's really cool. I I got to go to one of the dinners for for the sales conference and it was really cool. Um, I was very nervous that night, but everyone was so nice. And it's it's neat because you get to meet, like you said, people from all over the country. Um, so yeah, that's I think dope. Yeah, I think one of the things that another thing that aside from editors also being rejected is that a lot of people in this industry, you know, fan over people, right? Like when I get a submission, I like you know. And it's like the submission of my dreams, like I fan over it. Or, you know, when you get to meet that author of the book you read before sales conference and, you know, they're at their dinner, like, like you, Clarabelle, like um, getting to have those little moments of being like, oh my mm-hmm. God, like, you know, I loved it. Or, you know, those are really special moments. Yeah, for sure. As an author, I don't, I think that's one of the things I'm like going to remember for a long time because it just felt really special to be in this room with like all these people that will be working on your book that read your book before it's out so it's like the first time that you're interacting with like a big group (laughs) um, that's read (laughs) your book and they're like bringing up different things about it and it's it's really cool it's it's a it's a cool experience um so I want to know in terms of submissions right for when you get a submission in your inbox which I don't even want to know how much stuff you get, but uh, what draws you to one? <laughs> like, what draws you to submission? What makes you say, like, eh, this isn't for me? And what makes yeah. you say, like, yes, yes, I want this? Um, so I'm someone who's, oh, my God, this is always a little tough for me because I actually read across varying genres. And even, I, I think something that authors have to keep in mind, and I think agents do know, this when they submit to us is that an editor can ask you for this you know manuscript wish list and they can say this thing and they can get a submission in and it'll hit it'll check off all those boxes it'll be right up that editor's alley and they might read it and review it and then ultimately decide no um and it happens the other way too where you know we could get a submission and it's not really up our alley the agent's like hey, this is a little bit of a risk, but I hope you'll like it and you review it and you can fall madly in love with something that is, you know, so, so different um, than what you usually expect. Um, For me, voice is definitely one of those things that can tip me into, I love it or this isn't for me. Um, This is especially important in middle grade when, you know, you have people who are not, you know, 11, 12 year olds, um, writing 11, 12 year olds. And if you don't get that voice, right, you can, it'll sound like, you know, someone older writing kids, um, 
you know, if they sound a little too sophisticated, if the vocabulary is different, if maybe like the slang is off, if, you know, references are being made, um, that's, that's always something that like tips me, like takes me out of the story. Like, ref like references in books are always very difficult, right? Because like it can age things, it can date it. Um, so like, if I see like a story and it, you know, it's talking about like my chemical romance and that's like the kid, like the protagonist's favorite band. I'm like, is it though? Because the kids are listening to like Billie Eilish right now. They're not listening to, like I was listening to my chemical romance. Um, and so like, it's, it's, it's very hard. So especially, like I said, especially in middle grade voice is really hard to nail down. Um, that's why, you know, we always say read what you want to write. Um, learn from other writers. Also, atmosphere can be something that really, like, takes me into a story. Um, if it's just, like, atmospheric, if it just makes me feel, like, those thrills and chills. This is especially important if it's, like, horror or supernatural. Like, I love something that, like, just evokes such a reaction from me um, when I'm reading it. Um, one of the books that I, I acquired had that exact same reaction from me when I immediately read it. I was like, this is the book that I would have devoured as a teen. That's why I tend to read all the way through if I'm interested in it. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think that, you know, obviously you're coming at this industry from an editor's perspective, uh, but I think that you are definitely very special in the fact that like you kind of really become involved in the writing community and you are friends or friendly with a lot of writers. So you kind of understand like our personal pain. <laughs> um, so with like that very special, like interlinking of experiences like what's some advice that you'd want to give like to new authors either trying to break into the publishing industry or ones that are like about to debut and want to sustain their author career like what's one big piece of advice that you'd give to them oh my one I mean you could give more than one but I don't want to like force you to do too much <laughs> I okay so I always say and I just said this read what you want to write. I know y'all always hear it, but it is so important. And not only read what you want to write, but read books that have recently been published. This is also an issue that I, that I often see when I'm doing informationals for people who want to be an editorial. Like if you're telling me like the temple classics, I'm like, okay, that's fine and all, but what did you love within the, that has been published within the last year? Right. Um, because you're gonna wanna be on top of like, what is being published? Can I comp to these books? Can I learn from what they're doing? Um, it's like everything in life is a learning um, process, right? You're always constantly learning and evolving. Same for, you know, writing. Your, your writing now is gonna be completely different probably in, you know, five years and 10 years. Um, so that's always my biggest advice. And also just, remember that like everyone's path is so completely different and I experienced this too from like my professional career side where I'm like oh like you know my friends are you know doing this or that like am I good um 
you know, and I see my author friends also talk about this of like, oh, like, you know, trying not to compare themselves to other writers. But, and it's really hard because we're human and that's what we're going to do. But every writer's path is different. So, you know, keep your eye on your prize, like what you want to do, focus on your writing, on your craft. That's what matters. Like, I love being involved. I love, you know, going on Twitter and ranting, but you know what matters? <laughs> the work. And the work is publishing amazing books for ki- children who are going to grow up and be like us one day, right? Who are going to you know, do their own podcast and talk about the books they grew up loving. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yep. And that's the work. That's what's important. That's great. I love, I love that for sure. I kind of, I feel like we say a lot, like keep your eyes on your own paper, but I think we say it a lot because it's really easy to forget that advice. No, yeah. It's hard. You know, like I said, your jealousy and like kind of looking to see if the grass is always greener is, just part of being human. Oh, mm-hmm. I just remembered. I think the other advice that I would give is never be afraid, like, especially if you're like on social to talk about what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So like, like what you want to write, you just mm-hmm. never know if there's an editor who's looking at your Twitter and might see like, Oh my God, like Kat mentioned she wants to write like a dark academia story. Okay. <laughs> mm, can we make this happen? Because I want Kat to write me a dark academia story. Like you just never know. Like I'm mm-hmm. a huge person of like, speak it out into the universe, manifest it. You never know who's watching. Editors have social media too. Or, you know, we actually talk amongst each other and collaborate in that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I see that an author has said that, you know, they want to write IP for you know, middle grade horror, we develop IP. And, you know, that might be someone that I look to, um, maybe reach out to their agent and say, hey, I saw this tweet, they they said this, um, are they interested? Like, I, I got something. Um, you just, like I said, you'd never know, speak it out. <laughs> don't be shy. Yeah, nice. I, I love that. Just, just don't give too spe- get too specific when you share those ideas, writers, because there's some people yeah. who are sketchy on twitter very um, sketchy yeah but like to give themes of like yeah, what themes you are, are interested in mm-hmm. i think that's totally fine like i yeah. talk about k-dramas all the time it, i would be shocked if people who follow me on twitter didn't know that that's a huge inspiration of mine um because i talk about it so much um but i also do think that it's interesting because i know a lot of people who are like i don't tweet at all anything that i want to write because i don't want anyone to steal it and I, I, it makes me sad, you know, I, I get it, I do, I understand that, like, Twitter is such an open forum, and, like, you don't know who to trust on there, but, like, I feel like in our industry, like, you can't move, fo- we can't move forward with paranoia, otherwise, we'll never send our work out, like, one person once said to me, like, um, they asked me, oh, it was during DVCon, and I was moderating the YouTube chat, and someone asked a question, they were like, how do I ensure that sending my manuscript to an editor doesn't mean that they won't steal the idea and give it to a bigger writer? And I was like, well, because our industry is like, <laughs> it's not like the industry as a whole, like could not run if that's how it works. Also, worked. that's a huge legal issue. Just FYI. Like yeah. if that ha- ever happened and then like the writer found out and they were like, I can prove, prove that you basically stole this idea and plagiarized this mm-hmm. woof, 
bad bad (laughs) yeah Yeah. not to mention writers won't want to trust an editor who does something like that Mm -hmm. in the future like your credibility is going to be in shambles yeah but it just makes me sad that people worry about that at all you know yeah I mean I get it especially when you're not in the industry like the first thing people tell you is like copyright your work you know like (laughs) that's like the first thing that people who who aren't in publishing tell new writers to do because they don't know how anything works but yeah um so that it's just like the it's just like the pervasive like sort of opinions about publishing the wrong ones that get to people Mm -hmm. but there are like you you shouldn't you should also not be stupid with your ideas you know what I mean like yeah yeah, Yeah, yeah. um you'll be fine because an but an editor sharing something with an editor is very different than putting it on twitter.com because there's even companies (laughs) that have stolen ideas so (laughs) that's why um Shelly do you have uh can you tell people like how can they support BIPOC writers like pre-order their books (laughs) yes pre-order and I'm just not saying buy books like like people don't understand how important those pre-orders are like that is really like a marker that like sales and like internal people are looking at and being like okay like how is this doing how is this going to do like if you really want to support like like BIPOC creators, like you gotta pre-order their books when they come out. Like that's so so important. Yeah, yeah. that's good. That's good to know. Really, I good. think yeah, yeah. Because there's always people. I mean, ever, almost an- anyone is going to be um, budgeting out their how much they can spend on books. Like we're not all super duper rich or anything. So you love books, oh, but you absolutely. can only buy <laughs> right. Um, but like, yeah, because like, so as a reader, if you love books and you know you can only buy like one book a month, um, if you're like timing wise, like try to be, um, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Strategic. Yeah. Yeah. Try to, like if you can try to be strategic about it um, to make your dollar matter more in terms of like showing who you truly support and who you think deserves more support from the industry to like be pre-ordering BIPOC books. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And with that, I think word of mouth is, you know, like Twitter's great, Bookstagram's great, Booktube is great, but we all have to remember that these kind of work in like, like silos in a way, like, you know, there are those communities there and that's really fantastic, but there's a huge population of people who are also readers that are not in any of those three um, things, right? And word of mouth, like, is some of the best marketing you can do for a book. So if you especially love a book by someone, um, like, tell a friend, have them tell their other friends. Like, you know, I, I've i always seen these tweets by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, who wrote Mexican Gothic and Y'all, I love that book. Let me do some word of mouth. <laughs> I absolutely love that book. I will never look at mushrooms the same way again, <laughs> even though I've already hated mushrooms. It just made it worse for me. But um, she's tweeted about how the fact that she got on the New York Times bestseller list is because people kept doing reviews. They kept talking about it on Goodread. They mm-hmm. kept talking about it on Twitter and social media and telling their friends and family to buy this book. And that works. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you can't underestimate how like like the value of just telling someone what the books that you've recently read that you've loved are. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, isn't that how it worked um, for Karen, Karen McManus? Like she didn't hit the list for the first month, but like the P- everyone who read her book when it first came oh, out loved it. Absolutely. Yeah. So they all talked it up and then she hit the list like a month later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, and that can happen at any, like, you know, just at any time, like there could be that surge just because people are still talking about it. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That's really great advice too. I think it's kind of like, I, I, I do think sometimes like I talk about books so much that I'm like, are people bored of me talking about books? But like if, if one person will buy a book by a BIPOC or a marginalized writer because I talked about it so much, then I, I feel fine. I feel good. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say like one of my friends was the one who recommended mixing and Gothic to me. Like I hadn't, I don't, I don't read a lot of adult because, you know, I'm so enmeshed into into kidlet but I actually read mm-hmm. it more now because I like am a little burnt out because I'm always reading submissions so that's a way to separate my brain out from my normal work um but I remember my friend was the one who was like telling me look I know you haven't read any of her books like it's really great but Mexican gothic like you you know you should read this I think you'll love it it's a little crimson peak she it, you know um she's been promoting it like it's a little Lovecraftian horror. And I was like, okay, all right, all right. And I read it and look, I freaking love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, now that I think about it, um, all of my favorite books from when I was younger were recommended to me by someone else. I did not find them other than Twilight. I read Twilight because it was on the New York Times bestseller list. But um, The Hunger Games was recommended to me. Um, Time Traveler's Wife, which is like one of my favorite books when I was in college, was recommended to me. Um, and Animorphs when I was a kid, <laughs> like my best friend and like in like second grade, she was like, have you heard of the series called The Animorphs? Like I, that was word of mouth. And then I like binge read it. So yeah, like even everyone does word of mouth, like and it works across the board. Like, like if little like eight year old me found a whole entire series because of it, then you can find one too. <laughs> so funny. Animorphs. Not Animorphs. <laughs> we talk about Animorphs so much on this podcast be- and because exclusively because of Kat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. It has it has very adult themes about like war and the price of war. Anyway, it's fine. I'm I'm still I'm still trying to um, figure out how to start a podcast with Katie Rose. Stanamorphs, do it! <laughs> that is the best name. Oh my god! I'm like, well, I'm like, only Clarabelle will listen to it, and she'll just do it. She'll have it on in the like, background because she'll be like, I don't really care about this content, but I support. Into <laughs> it, I love the name so. Much. Yeah, you will. Uh-huh. Yeah, you will. <laughs> um, Shelly, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. It was a pleasure to speak to you. It's really cool seeing like BIPOC editors, Latinx editors out here doing the damn thing. And we need more of you in the industry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I could because I'd do a little too much and that would be nice to have some extra fans <laughs> available. <laughs> But thanks y'all so much of for having course. me. I love y'all. Like I love this oh, podcast. So. I always recommend it. Thank to you. We're it's on my resource document. <laughs> We're on the resource document. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, Shelly. So everyone who's on the podcast tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story or something they wish they'd known before they got into the industry. It could be either or. It could be both. It's up to you. 
Man, okay. Embar- I don't know if I got embarrassing stories. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely been hiccups <laughs> in my career. Shout out to my bosses who just deal with like my every like spiral in the most graceful way possible. <laughs> um, I think so. I went to the NYU Summer Publishing Institute, and I have lots of feelings, which I've made very clear about the institutes. Um, and I think one of the things that happened when we were having all these guest speakers is that a lot of the people that we uh, had come to talk to us were much older, much farther along in their career executives. They were like big names, right? Because you're wanting to make the program enticing, but it's a detriment because you know you don't get to actually hear what it's like. Um, and because of that, I really truly would have like wanted to know how exactly like being an editor is like what exactly like the day-to-day would look like um and the fact that it is quite the like apprenticeship thing it's the most apprenticeship like career out of I think all the other ones you can definitely have transferable skills in all the other um like departments and paths but editorial really is the one that like you build yourself up from the ground up, like, and hopefully you have bosses who are also mentors, but also advocates for you that are, you know, guiding you through your path to becoming a full-fledged editor. Um, I'm very grateful and thankful to have Matt and Jenny as my bosses. Um, Everything that I've learned about being an editor, I've learned on the job. I definitely had skills coming in, but everything I learned was on the job. And yeah, also that I wasn't going to be reading submissions because <laughs> I read <laughs> agents. If you're listening to this, I am reading submissions. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that I wasn't. Um, but they tend to sometimes fall to the bottom of the to-do list because I, you know, I'm having, you know, to go to meetings or I'm having to work on metadata before it feeds out to all the catalogs, like Edelweiss, like, you know, there's all these other things that take up your day as an editor, you know, author phone calls, agent phone calls to talk about what you want to acquire that, um, you know, all I ever heard coming out of the NYU program was that editors were very introverted and they just read all day. And that could be farthest from the truth. (laughs) It's, Mm. yeah, that's what I wish I would have known more Mm. of, um, because it almost kind of put me off of going into editorial because of that. Oh, wow. Um, Interesting. But thankfully I didn't. And here we are. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think it's also good to know because a lot of writers stress out on sub because the waiting Mm. is so long, Mm -hmm. but I think it always does help to kind of give the reality of it and being like it's not taking so long because they don't like your book it's taking so long because they have to do their nine to five yeah absolutely during the regular hours which does not include reading submissions yeah Um, it's an it's a nice reminder I think for authors who are on sub that it's not indicative of the quality of their work how long it takes them to hear back I feel like this is one of the situations where like that kind of like no news is good news kind of is like true because they could just be reading it um I tend to be someone who like you know I always ask if you you know to the agent I'm like if you get this going to acquisitions let me know because 
that means that I'll move it ahead and I'll review it and, you know, try to get through it enough to either say, okay, I'm going to pass best of luck or, okay, now I got to get ready for acquisitions. Um, cause mm-hmm. acquisitions t- like prepping for acquisitions takes literally like a week off of my work life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like it is, it is, it's really tough. And I, I know I, as an editor, and I know a lot of my friends who are editors do feel guilty when, you know, we've taken a month or two months or a little longer to get back to submissions, but it, it really is hard to juggle everything. And especially now that we're not getting to do that, like commuting, like I, like my commute is like 45 minutes or so to the office. I sometimes use that in the afternoon when I'm heading home to read something on the train on my phone. Um, and I know a lot of editors who used to do that. And so that's another thing that the pandemic has kind of taken away from us is that commute reading time. Damn pandemic taken away so much. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so Shelly, thank you so much for being on this podcast with us today. It's been really nice to talk to you, uh, to get your perspective and could you let everyone know uh, how to find you on the internet if they want to follow you? Yeah, and th- thanks again for having me. I absolutely love talking to y'all. Um, so you can reach me. I have a website. It's just Shelly M, as in Marie, uh, Romero.com. And then my I'm always on Twitter, which is underscore SM Romero. Um, and that's where I'm at. Um, always around or watching a scary movie. Love it. Love it so much. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.